This episode discusses adult subject matter, including descriptions of sexual abuse of a child, and is intended for adult consumption only. Listener discretion is advised. If you have been affected by sexual violence, free, confidential support is available 24-7 through Rain's National Sexual Assault Hotline at 800-656-4673 and online.rain.org. It's August 10th, 1981. A drainage canal runs parallel with the Florida Turnpike. At around mile marker 130, there's a small dock that juts out into the canal. As the heat of the day cools, the air is scented with oranges from the nearby citrus groves. Two field workers, finished for the day, carry their rods and nets down to the wooden dock for a spot of rest and relaxation. Maybe they'll catch something for their evening meal. Or maybe they'll just shoot the breeze. The air is less fragrant down by the water. In fact, a rotten stench hits them like a smack in the face. And then they see it. At first, they think it's from a life-size doll or a mannequin. But then, the full horror of what they're looking at hits them. Fifteen days earlier, a blonde-haired, hazel-eyed little boy called Adam Walsh went missing from a shopping mall in Hollywood, Florida, more than a hundred miles south of here. Soon, it will be confirmed that what these two fishermen have stumbled upon are the only remains of Adam Walsh that will ever be found. At the moment of death, people often have an overwhelming need to get their biggest secrets off their chests. From murder, fake identities, illicit affairs, and even government cover-ups, this show dives deep into the world's most explosive deathbed confessions. This is the story of Otis Toole, of the words he spoke as he lay dying in a prison infirmary, of the one crime that obsessed him to his dying day, it's the story of a family's unimaginable pain and grief. Of their decades-long search for justice for their little boy, Adam. And their lifelong campaign for the parents of other missing children. It's about what happens when something wild and without mercy drifts into town to shatter the peace of an ordinary American suburb. I'm Estefania Hagman, and this is Deathbed Confessions. We're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. 
Fifteen years after the fishermen make their grisly discovery, convicted serial killer Otis Toole will admit to killing Adam Walsh while dying in a prison infirmary. If Toole's deathbed confession is genuine, it will mean parents everywhere can sleep more easily. There will be one less monster to worry about. To better understand the weight of Otis Toole's deathbed confession, we need to look more closely into the immediate aftermath of Adam's disappearance. After all, to begin with, there was nothing really to connect Toole in the case, besides one witness who remained silent. Despite this, the Hollywood police have no shortage of leads. Unfortunately, most of them lead nowhere. They've never experienced a crime like this. So who knows what other sightings and tips might have been scribbled down on matchbooks and paper napkins never to be followed up. By August 10th, Adam has been missing for two weeks. His parents, John and Reve Walsh, have been through hell. But today, with the discovery of grisly human remains in the drainage canal near Vero Beach, their torments reach a new and harrowing level. For the first time, John and Reve must face the possibility that their son is dead. And the police are no longer looking for a kidnapper. They're hunting a murderer. The prime suspect is close family friend Jimmy Campbell, who's confessed to having an affair with Reve Walsh. As far as the lead detective Jack Hoffman is concerned, that gives Campbell motive. The way he sees it, Reve broke off the affair. In a jealous rage, Campbell snatches and kills Adam. It reads like something out of a trashy pulp crime novel, but the police are feeling the heat. They need to get this case wrapped up so the world can go back to the way it was and the parents and children of America don't have to live in fear anymore. If Campbell is the killer and Adam was murdered by his mother's insanely jealous ex-lover, sick and twisted as that is, it's not as bad as the alternative. A nameless predator out there on the streets who is right now hunting for the next child to snatch and kill. John and Reve Walsh are spared the horror of identifying their son. That appalling task falls to another close family friend, John Monahan. Monahan will do anything for John Walsh because years ago at the Diplomat Hotel on Hollywood Beach, Walsh saved the life of Monahan's own son after he became trapped in a drainage pipe that was filling up with water. In Monahan's mind, there can be no doubt. It's Adam. Dental records confirm it. The question now is who could have done this and why? To find the answers, we need to look closer into the life of the man who two years from now will make his first confession to killing Adam Walsh, only to retract it soon after. Born in Jacksonville, Florida in 1947, Otis Toole is the youngest of nine children. With an IQ of 75, Otis struggles at school. The other kids don't like him. They call him names and make fun of him. One time, he's struck on the head by a flying rock. It's not an accident. The kid who throws it is screaming he wants to kill Otis. It's a serious assault, and it seems probable that Otis Toole suffers a brain injury. That's when the seizures start. The injury may also have affected his personality. It's well known that trauma to the brain can cause aggression. It may also result in a loss of inhibition, impulsiveness, and a self-centered lack of empathy. These are all traits the adult Otis Toole exhibits. They also happen to be textbook traits of a psychopath. 
At the age of six, the same age Adam is when he goes missing, Otis Toole is sexually abused by a neighbor. Mocked by his family for his effeminacy, Toole struggles with his sexuality as he grows up. He sometimes wears dresses and is sexually drawn to other men as well as women. According to his own account, his mother liked to dress him in girls' clothes when he was little. Jacksonville in the 70s is not an easy place to be gay or bisexual. As a young man, he's constantly in trouble with the law, arrested for vagrancy and prowling in 1968, picked up for carrying a concealed weapon in 1972. The rap sheet goes on to include lewd and lascivious behavior, public intoxication, making obscene phone calls, window peeping, and exposing himself in public. He also turns tricks as a sex worker. In 1981, the year Adam Walsh goes missing, Otis Toole is 34 years old. He's still living with his mom. Home is a three-bedroom rented house at 708 Day Avenue, Murray Hill Heights, in Jacksonville, Florida. It's a crowded household. As well as Otis and his mother, Sarah, there's Otis's stepdad, Robert Harley. Otis has a sister named Drusilla. Her three kids live there too, Sarah, Frank, and Becky. Drusilla can't look after them anymore on account of her substance abuse problems. Somehow, Otis got himself a wife, Rita, who also lives there. Rita is 24 years older than Otis. What Otis gets out of the relationship, we can only guess. Maybe he sees Rita as a second mother. Or maybe the marriage was a convenient screen for his sexuality. Because to complete the extended family, a man called Henry Lee Lucas moves in. Otis met Lucas at a Jacksonville soup kitchen in 1976. They hit it off immediately. Somewhere along the line, the two men become lovers. They have a lot in common. Henry Lee sustained a head injury in his youth too. In his case, it left him with a glass eye that seeps constantly. They both had absent fathers and suffered childhood abuse. Their relationships with their mothers were difficult and intense. Otis's mother was a religious fanatic who struggled to control her wayward son. Henry Lee's was mean and emotionally abusive, so much so that he ended up killing her in 1960. Which brings us to the other bond that the two men shared. Murder. Lucas was 23 when he killed his mother. His first murder. Otis claims he ran over and killed a traveling salesman when he was 14. They share stories of childhood abuse and compare notes over the best way to kill someone. By around 1980, when they go off on their first confirmed murder spree together, their homicidal fantasies have turned to reality. The two pursue their common interest with enthusiasm, drifting from town to town to commit a spate of murders. Lucas takes on the role of mentor, with Tool as his eager student. There is no consistent MO to their crimes. The victims are both men and women. Some seem to be burglaries gone wrong. For others, the motive appears sexual. For example, they kill three women in three months in the neighboring Florida towns of Bonifay and Chipley, and then murder an elderly man in a convenience store robbery, beating him with a tire wrench before shooting him in the head. Wherever they strike, they leave a trail of chaos and terror. Somehow they manage to hide their secret life from the rest of the household, who are used to the two of them disappearing for long stretches. All in all, things are going well for Otis Toole in early 1981. He's got a roof over his head. It may not be the most conventional household, but it suits him. Then, on May 16th, 1981, Otis Toole's world is torn apart. 
his mother dies. The only person who has ever loved or cared for him is snatched away. Although theirs has not always been an easy relationship, it was certainly intense. Being the youngest in a large family, he was always her baby. Her doll, even, given her habit of dressing him up in girls' clothes. And the fact that he was the one who stuck around shows his dependence on her. Sarah's death hits him hard. He's seen lying on her grave in Evergreen Cemetery. He wants to be close to her. He says the ground feels warm there. He can feel it move. Otis has never been good at expressing his emotions, and the feelings that overwhelm him are now more than he can handle. He hears voices urging him to kill himself. It's time to join mom, the voices tell him. He's got a job with a roofing company. His attendance record has never been great, but one day he stops showing up for work altogether. All this is happening in June 1981, the month before Adam Walsh goes missing. Then, on June 23rd, the old family home, 708 Day Avenue, goes up in flames. You know those emotions Otis struggles to express? It turns out setting fire to his dead mother's house is one way of getting them out. Maybe he wants the flames to burn away the pain. Maybe he's trying to punish his mother for abandoning him. Or maybe he has to destroy his old life before he can start a new one. After Otis Tool sets fire to the family home, he and Henry Lee Lucas skip town in a stolen pickup truck. They take Frank and Becky, two of his sister Drusilla's kids, along for the ride. Since the fire, the children have been staying with one of Tool's brothers. Then one day, Uncle Otis turns up in his pickup truck with Henry Lee. Given Otis's habit of pimping out his eldest niece, Sarah, to his friends, we can only assume she declines the invitation to join them. The two men have a plan. They'll drive north to Maryland and start a new life. It's over 700 miles to Maryland, a marathon 11-hour drive from Florida. That's just about enough distance to put the past behind them. Otis believes that they'll be like a real family. It's always been his dream. He and Henry Lee will raise the kids as their own. They hammer the truck up the coast, maybe it runs out of gas or maybe the engine blows, but they ditch it somewhere in Delaware. It's a setback, but what do they care? The truck doesn't belong to them anyway. The owner is Otis Toole's sister-in-law, Georgia. Toole and Lucas told her they needed it to haul some scrap iron to the Jacksonville dump, not hightail it across five states. Georgia reports it's stolen, putting the police on their tail. By the time state troopers catch up with the Mary Band in Pikesville, Maryland, Otis Tool has already split. Henry Lee has started looking at Becky funny. Otis isn't great at reading these situations, but to him it's pretty obvious that his lover has eyes for his 13-year-old niece. The pain he felt when he lost his mom starts up again, worse than ever. His mother couldn't help abandoning him, but with Henry Lee, this is betrayal and it hurts. The voices in his head are back, urging him to kill himself. Then he can rest and be with mom forever. To drown them out, he goes off on a bender in Newport News, Virginia, sleeping rough, drinking hard. Meanwhile, Lucas is thrown in jail. The two kids are taken into protective care, where maybe they should have been all along. Let's try and get inside Otis Tool's head. It's not a comfortable place to be, but we have to if we want to get to the truth of what happened to Adam Walsh. 
First, he loses his mom. He's so upset he burns down her house. That makes him feel better. It always does, watching things burn. Now, he tries to start a new life with a man he loves. But Henry Lee Lucas betrays him, flirting with Becky right in front of Otis's nose. Maybe it's more than flirting. The fact that Becky's only 13 doesn't really come into it as far as Henry Lee is concerned. So Lucas and Tool fall out. There's a parting of the ways. Otis feels himself abandoned again. First his mom, then Henry Lee. All his dreams of starting over with a new family are in tatters. It's a sad, sorry story, but it tells us a lot about the kind of man Otis Tool is. Impulsive and chaotic. He lies to get what he wants. Steals a truck to head hundreds of miles north. He doesn't let anyone know he's got the kids in tow. And he doesn't think twice about leaving his 13-year-old niece alone with a man who is clearly intent on abusing her. Maybe he's just doing what the voices in his head tell him. Maybe he's hurting so bad he just wants to outrun his pain. Somehow, drifting and hitching, he makes his way to Newport News. There, he drinks and ODs his way into a hospital psych ward. The Friday before Adam Walsh is abducted, Otis Toole is discharged from Riverside Hospital in Newport News, Virginia. He tells doctors he's got a job waiting for him back in Jacksonville, Florida. That makes him better off than most of the hopeless cases they have to deal with. And they need the bed. As far as the doctors are concerned, he's good to go. There's nothing keeping him in Newport News, and he has no idea where Henry Lee and the kids have got to by now, even if he wants to be reunited with them, which he doesn't. The way he sees it, he may as well head back to Jacksonville while he figures out his next move. He boards the bus at 6.30 p.m. and takes a long overnight ride back home to Florida. Compared to some of the places he's been sleeping recently, this is luxury. On the bus, he has plenty of time to think. He feels an ache in his heart for the happy childhood he never had. That's all he wanted to give Becky and Frank. Then Henry Lee went and made everything filthy. Otis bangs his head hard against the Greyhound window as he tries to get his thoughts straight. People always let him down, and he always ends up left with nothing. Maybe it's time he should just go out there and take what he wants. The bus pulls into Jacksonville at around 11 the next morning. It's Saturday, July 25th two days before Adam Walsh's disappearance. Otis Toole has nowhere to stay. And despite what he told doctors, he really doesn't want to go back to his job with the roofing company. Hell no. The stench of hot tar makes him want to puke. There have got to be easier ways of making money. So what does he do now? What do the voices whisper in his head this time? It just so happens he knows there's a white 71 Cadillac with a black top that used to be his, only he couldn't keep up with the payments. It's parked at the compound of Reeves Roofing where he was working till he couldn't be bothered with it anymore. He still has the key to the gate and the keys for the caddy too. Back when it was his, he had a spare set made just in case. Is it possible Otis Tool takes another vehicle that doesn't belong to him and gets straight back on the road, this time heading south to Hollywood, Florida? Before we answer that question for sure, we have to consider another possibility. In the last episode, we heard about witnesses who saw a little boy being dragged into a blue van. That van became the focus of the police investigation. We have nothing to link Otis Tool to a blue van, but we can link it to another self-confessed serial killer who is believed to have been in the area at the time. 
a killer by the name of Jeffrey Dahmer. Jeffrey Dahmer will go on to become one of the most notorious serial killers in American history. After his capture, he will freely confess to the murder of 17 young men and boys. His MO includes dismemberment and decapitation. So could he have been responsible for Adam Walsh's murder? Let's take a look at how his name becomes connected to the case in the first place. The death of a child is a tragedy for any parent. But to lose your child at the hand of a vicious murder is more than a tragedy. It is the cruelest torture. In the first days after Adam's disappearance, John and Reve Walsh throw themselves into looking for their son. They set up an unofficial command center to coordinate with the search and help the overburdened police. After it's confirmed that Adam is dead, the focus switches to finding his murderer. They become frustrated by police failures. Initially, the FBI are reluctant to get involved, indicating they have to be invited in by the local police force, which Hollywood PD refuses to do. The Walshes see firsthand the chaos and confusion in the Hollywood Police Department. The tips scribble down on post-it notes, the leads not followed up. They are shocked by the poor communication between different state police forces and the lack of a central criminal database which would allow authorities to coordinate their efforts. But instead of spiraling into despair, they focus their anger on bringing about change. They attend conferences and meet with other parents of missing children. They learn about the world of runaways and sexual exploitation, about the men who prey on lost children, the pedophiles and the sex traffickers. And so the search for justice for Adam broadens out into a campaign to help others. John and Reve established the Adam Walsh Child Rescue Center for Missing Children, which will later grow into the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. John Walsh travels to Washington to talk to politicians. He becomes a skilled communicator and forceful lobbyist. He appears before Congress and takes part in judiciary hearings. Their campaign helps to bring about much needed changes in the law. The Missing Children Act is passed in 1982 the Adam Walsh Child Protection and Safety Act in 2006. Throughout all this, John and Reve are motivated by one thought, to ensure that Adam did not die in vain. Almost by accident, John Walsh has become a high-profile media figure. In 1987, he is approached by executives at 20th Century Fox. They want him to present a new show they're developing. The show is called America's Most Wanted. Walsh accepts. America's Most Wanted goes on to become one of Fox's biggest primetime hits, running for 23 years and over a thousand episodes with John Walsh at the helm. The show has helped to put away hundreds of violent criminals. And in 1991, the America's Most Wanted tip line receives a call from a source claiming to have information about a case very close to John Walsh's heart. The murder of his son, Adam. It has been 10 years since Adam's death. No one has ever been charged with the crime. Otis Toole has made and retracted several confessions. By now, the detectives working the case have dismissed him as an attention-seeking time waster. Then, one call comes in out of the blue, and it promises to change everything. The caller is another father, but he is not the parent of a missing child. He is the father of a cold-blooded murderer. His name 
is Lionel Dahmer. The caller's son, Jeffrey Dahmer, has recently been arrested and charged with multiple murders. But Lionel Dahmer calls the America's Most Wanted tip line to say he believes his son is guilty of more crimes than have yet come to light. For one thing, he believes his son is a pedophile and that there's a strong chance he killed Adam Walsh. Even so, Hollywood, Florida is a long way from Dahmer's hometown of Milwaukee. So is there any evidence Dahmer is ever in the Miami area? It turns out there is. The evidence has him living and working a mere 15-minute drive from the Hollywood Mall, and it places him there in July 1981. Just 20 days before Adam Walsh's murder, the Miami-Dade medical examiner records the death of a 55-year-old homeless man by the name of Jaida Bohumil. On the police report, the name of the person reporting the death is Dahmer, Jeffrey. Now, of course, we would be suspicious if Dahmer's name showed up in connection with a sudden death. But in 1981, Dahmer is unknown to the authorities. The incident is treated as routine. And for all we know, Bahumil really did die of natural causes. On the report, Dahmer's address is given as Sunshine Subs, a fast food outlet in the Sunny Isles Beach area of Miami. Turns out that's where he worked. It's about seven and a half miles south of Hollywood, Florida. Dahmer himself confirms his presence in Miami. After his arrest in 1991, he tells Milwaukee police that when he got out of the army, he was offered a plane ticket to anywhere in the U.S. I didn't want to go home right away because I didn't feel comfortable explaining to my folks why I was out six months early. So I decided that Miami, Florida would be a nice warm place to go. So we can be absolutely certain that Dahmer is in the Miami area at the time of Adam Walsh's murder, living and working close enough to stop off at the Hollywood Mall. After his brief stint in Florida, Jeffrey Dahmer returns to the Midwest, first Ohio, then Wisconsin. For the next decade, he embarks on a horrific killing spree that will claim the lives of at least 17 young men. He is finally captured by police in Milwaukee on July 22nd, 1991, just five days short of the 10th anniversary of Adam Walsh's disappearance. The shocking story of this cold-blooded killer breaks on an unsuspecting public. Two days later, an article about Dahmer is being prepared for the next day's Miami Herald by printer Willis Morgan. The article is a syndicated reprint of a story from the Milwaukee Sentinel placing Dahmer in Miami around the time of Adam Walsh's disappearance. It includes a photograph of Dahmer taken in 1982. Morgan's pulse starts beating hard and fast. This is the guy, he shouts excitedly. Morgan tells his friends that he was in the Sears Mall in Hollywood on July 27, 1981, the day Adam Walsh went missing. The way he tells it, he's browsing the bargains in Radio Shack when he's approached by a disturbing-looking man. After Morgan rebuffs his overtures, the guy glares at him coldly for way too long. Spooked by the encounter, he follows the guy into Sears, where he's last seen heading for the toy department. A few days later, when the news of Adam Walsh's disappearance gets out, Willis Morgan reports the incident to the Hollywood police, but no one gets back in touch to follow it up. It's only now, 10 years later, seeing Dahmer's piercing eyes staring out at him from the newspaper that he realizes. The man who approached him that day was Jeffrey Dahmer. 
And Willis Morgan isn't the only witness to place Dahmer in the Hollywood Mall on July 27, 1981. A few days later in Birmingham, Alabama, Bill Bowen is reading the same syndicated article on Jeffrey Dahmer, this time reprinted in the Birmingham News. He sees the photograph of Dahmer and is instantly taken back to a day almost exactly 10 years earlier, July 27, 1981. He's crossing the parking lot of the Sears Mall in Hollywood, Florida. That's when he sees a man in a green army jacket force a small child into a blue van. Maybe Bowen thinks it's some dad having an argument with his son. The kid's playing up, throwing a full-scale tantrum. The dad loses his temper. Not great to see, but it's none of Bowen's business. By now, looking at the mugshot in the paper, it hits him. The guy he saw. It's this guy. This Jeffrey Dahmer. Bowen contacts Jack Hoffman of Hollywood Police, the lead detective on the Adam Walsh case. He makes the following statement. I heard the racket of a man dragging a boy out of his arms, really manhandling him. I heard the little boy saying, I don't want to go, I'm not going, something along those lines. The man proceeded to pick the boy up, throw him physically into the van that was parked in what I thought at the time looked like a fire lane. And I vividly remember this van screeching off. You could hear the tire screeching as the van took off. Bowen describes the boy as being about five or six and wearing a striped shirt, just like the one Adam is wearing the day he is taken. This is not the first time that a blue van has entered the story. In the first few days after Adam goes missing, multiple tips come in mentioning a blue van. One of the callers is Marilyn Pottenberg. She claims her 10-year-old son Timothy saw a little boy who looked like Adam Walsh being forced into a dark blue van. At the time, it's enough to convince the police that they have their first solid lead. There's only one problem with Timothy Pottenberg's statement. It places the incident as happening in the middle of the afternoon, long after Reve Walsh has raised the alarm. It just doesn't fit the timeline. Maybe the guy trying to get the boy into the blue van is an over-anxious father, desperate to get his son away from a place where there might have been a child snatcher lurking. Or maybe the Pottenbergs have got the time wrong, and Jeffrey Dahmer really did take Adam Walsh. Because it turns out that Sunshine Subs, where Dahmer works, has a sister restaurant selling pizzas, and the pizza shop has a blue van for picking up supplies and making deliveries. A blue van that employees are free to borrow. A blue van that occasionally goes missing. Coupled with the lead from Dahmer's father, the information provided by Willis Morgan and Bill Bowen is taken seriously. They are regarded as credible witnesses. Detective Jack Hoffman of the Hollywood PD travels to the Columbian Correctional Institution in Wisconsin to interview Jeffrey Dahmer. Ten years ago, before Adam Walsh went missing, such an encounter would have been unimaginable for the small-town detective. As a former traffic cop, the kinds of problems Hoffman is used to dealing with have not prepared him for this. Luckily, he's accompanied by Special Agent Dan Kraft of the FBI's Behavioral Sciences Unit. Kraft is a seasoned interrogator, known for his ability to get confessions out of even the most hardened criminals. Hoffman is carrying a letter from Mike Satz, Broward State Attorney, to the effect that the state will not press for the death penalty should Dahmer confess to murdering Adam. He has the Walsh's blessing in making this promise. They only want to get to the truth about what happened to Adam. If it's fear of facing the electric chair in Florida that's preventing Dahmer from confessing, then this should help loosen his tongue. 
Hoffman looks into the cold, emotionless eyes of an individual who, by any objective measure, is one of the most evil men to live. A smirk twitches on Dahmer's lips. He knows who has the power in the room. Hoffman establishes that Dahmer was in the Miami area at the time of Adam's murder. He then asks Dahmer outright if he has ever been to the Hollywood Mall. Dahmer's reply is unequivocal. Never went, wouldn't even know where to find the Hollywood Mall. Hoffman pushes him. You at no time were never in Sears or even in Hollywood, Florida? Absolutely not, insists Dahmer. I had to ask you right out if you had anything to do with the kidnapping and murder of Adam Walsh, continues Hoffman. Nothing, nothing, is Dahmer's reply. Special Agent Dan Kraft steps in. He puts it to him that he's not admitting to killing a child because he's embarrassed. Dahmer answers him with an evasion. My interest was in older adults of bar age, and all of them that I met I thought were bar age. In fact, two of Dahmer's known victims are as young as 14. And he was also arrested for sexual offenses against 12 and 13-year-old boys. In his report, Hoffman concludes, This detective and special agent Dan Kraft were in agreement that if Jeffrey Dahmer committed the Adam Walsh homicide, he would have confessed to this crime. In 1994, Dahmer is beaten to death by a fellow inmate. If it is ever on his mind to make a deathbed confession, he's robbed of the chance. There is only one man who will ever confess to murdering Adam Walsh, another serial killer, one whose murders had no pattern and often no reason, which made him harder to track and all the more terrifying. A killer named Otis Toole. Next week on Deathbed Confessions. We piece together the troubled life of Otis Toole. The police have more confessions than they can handle. The search for hard evidence proves frustrating. And Otis Toole writes a hate letter to John Walsh. For more information on Otis Toole and the murder of Adam Walsh, amongst the many sources we used, we found Tears of Rage by John Walsh Jeffrey Dahmer's Dirty Secret by Arthur J. Harris, Bringing Adam Home by Les Standiford and Joe Matthews, and Stalking Otis Toole, a Southern Gothic, by Tim Gilmore, extremely helpful to our research. Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boireau for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Written by Roger Morris. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley. Sound design by Tom Pink and Matias Torres. Mix master by Kian Ryan Morgan. 